So I stand personally in fear, not of you. I stand here in fear of God and his word. And I would ask that you be very patient with me this morning as I try to gently walk us through Psalm 51. I think you will find that as we reach into it, some will be deeply encouraged, some corrected, some even rebuked. And that is because Psalm 51 is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when he speaks, we have no option to listen. When Sinclair Ferguson tells of a story, he preached on Psalm 51 once. And when he finished preaching, he sat down next to a young lad. And the lad was physically sobbing his heart out. And Ferguson said to him, what's wrong? And the little boy said to him, I now know my sin. So we are dealing with something this morning. Brothers and sisters, we are on holy ground. And I ask that you uh, allow me some space. This will not be energetic. This will not be uh, anything probably inspirational. As much as I will try and make it entertaining to the extent that it grabs your minds and your hearts. But I will very gently walk us through. And if you are a guest today, um, and there may be some, we are walking through how to pray as Christians. And this morning, it is about repentance, which sadly has been, I would argue, close to forgotten, isn't it? Hmm. When last did we pray a prayer of repentance? Listening to Ferguson again, Ferguson says, sometimes we come in such awe before God that we should just shut our mouths because words are not enough. Isn't that amazing? So this morning we'll look at um, God, we'll look at us, we'll look at sin, and then we will dive into the text. So I will try as I can, work us through this, and again, my humblest apologies um, for my pure inadequacy this morning. I was told this would work. Uh, am I supposed to do something? There you go. So, um, the words are a bit small, but, uh, and I'm sorry about that, and I, I, I hope maybe some of you can read it. Why, why should we repent? What, 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 is, what is repentance? What, what, what is God's standard? Why should I repent? Well, if you go into some church buildings around the world, both Roman Catholic, Anglican, uh, Reformed Evangelical churches, you will see the Ten Commandments on the wall, won't you? What words are often not shown on the wall? Well, it's verse 1. So, it will start like this on the wall, thou shalt not. But do you know how Exodus 20 starts? It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You see, brothers and sisters, God's standard is love. 
It is not his commandments. His commandments are a consequence of his love, but it is love that is his standard. And you will have to, again, just bear with me. I'm going to walk you through a few things, because a few things you might be a little bit alarmed by, but I think Psalm 51 unpacks it. So it is not God's standard that is the measurement. It is God's love that is the measurement. And in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Let me tell you a little bit about God's love. It is a covenant love. It is a saving love. It is a faithful love. It is a pure love. It is a perfect love. And it is a holy love. But it is also an intolerant love. It cannot tolerate sin as much as we'd like it to. It cannot. So that is God's standard. Uh, Jack, you might need to, there you go. But what is our standard? Well, Paul says in his letters to the Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in and of itself, this is a very, very easy thing to say. But do you know we come here and we sing a song by Phil Wickham, and the song is Living Hope, and it says this, How great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. You see, there is a vast chasm between us and God. It is immense. And as I was saying to Andy the other day, as we grow in our love for God, as we grow in our maturity, our understanding of Christ, we understand that the chasm is wider than we originally thought it was. And then we multiply grace, and we say grace fills the gap. But brothers and sisters, there is a vast chasm between us and God. It is vast beyond all measure, and it is because God is holy, and his standard is his love. So now we must ask ourselves, well, I'm a Christian, but I am sinful. And there may be some here who are not Christians. Well, if you're not, I would argue very, very strongly right now that I'm going to um, be very contentious with you. And I'm going to say to Christian folk here this morning, I'm probably going to stir something in you this morning um, because of God's word. So John Kelvin, um, Jack, can you just, there you go. I don't know if you can read this, but let me do it for you. John Kelvin describes sin as this. Let it stand, therefore, as an unquestionable truth which no engines can shake. That the mind of man is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of God that he cannot conceive, desire, or design anything but what is wicked, distorted, foul, impure, and iniquitous. That his heart is so thoroughly envenomed by sin that it can breathe out nothing but corruption and rottenness. Hear this. That if some men occasionally make a show of goodness, their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and deceit their soul inwardly bound with the fetters of wickedness. If you were looking for an example of a hypocrite, 
you've got one. And I have the unenviable task of walking you through Psalm 51. It's my own fault, I might add. And so you might say, Greg, I'm not that bad. And I'd say to you, do you know the work of Christ on the cross? And you might say, Greg, should we keep his commandments? I'd say, how can you? And you might say, Greg, you're being too harsh. And I'd say, you don't know the standard of God's love. Did God not say in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? And you should love your neighbor as yourself. God's standard is his love. And we've rejected it. So let's have a look at our text. And I'm sorry I needed to set the platform. Um, The click is not working, so forgive me, I'm, I'm going a little bit around the houses here. But I had to set the platform because it's important that we understand what sin is. We must understand who God is. We must understand who we are. If you were to think of this, I'm going to use a bit of a business uh, analogy. We're going to go pretty deep, and then we're going to come out the other side. So let's have a go. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, we read this. This is um, uh, God's word. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure. Uh, This is to Saul. Uh, The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him leader over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And that man after God's own heart is David. This is King David. And so we fast forward to 2 Samuel. And we land up in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have this terrible downfall of David, where he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And before we we, we get to that point, um, God makes some wonderful promises to David. He says, I'll give you a king forever. I'll love you forever. You will be at rest. You will be at peace. And David's response is, O sovereign Lord. And he acknowledges God for who he is. And I would encourage you deeply to Samuel chapter 7. Go and read what God says to David. We don't have time for it this morning. And go and read David's response. But then a little while later, we hit 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it is David's adultery. He doesn't just commit adultery. He orchestrates murder. He puts his army at great risk to protect his own name. He causes devastation to Uriah and Uriah's family. And he causes severe pain, agony, and turmoil. And then the prophet Nathan approaches David. And if you ask yourself, Greg, you said God's love is intolerant. It is intolerant of sin. Hear the word of the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Where Nathan accuses David. 
of something. And he says, the Lord sent to Nathan, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. David, you are the man. After a little while, Discussion to Samuel chapter 12. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have made enemies of the Lord, uh, you, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. You see, Bathsheba was pregnant. So there was a direct accusation. Of David, and he was found out. And brothers and sisters, let's have a look at Psalm 51 now, and I will try and move through it as quickly as I can. But Psalm 51 is a response to being found out. Now, I would say this if you are a Christian here this morning, you have been found out, you have acknowledged that you've been found out, and you have responded because you have been found out by God. If you are not a Christian here this morning, and I say this um, partly unreservedly, partly with a little bit of trepidation, you have been found out. You may not know it yet. And so the most important thing I'd say that happened this morning was that the Bible was read and it was Psalm 51. Allow me to take it, you through it this morning. I'm sorry I've set the scene over such a long time, but it is worthwhile understanding the background to Psalm 51, otherwise we won't understand its depths. And I would say that in reviewing and learning about Psalm 51, this must be one of the most holiest forms of Scripture, if you could say there was a holier form of Scripture than any other word in it. Brothers and sisters, we are on holy ground this morning, and we're looking at Psalm 51. And it's in, in verse 1 and 2, we read, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfading love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You see, what David is doing is he is appealing to God for forgiveness. David is appealing to God for mercy. David is appealing to God for pardon. So if you went to court and you were convicted, let's pretend uh, you were convicted of being a, a, a serial murderer and uh, the judge found you guilty. Well, after you're found guilty, then your representative, your advocate, your queen's counsel, whoever it may be, stands in front of the judge and tries to mitigate your sentence, doesn't he or she? And the judge says, well, it should be 40 years or life, whatever the case may be. And your advocate argues, well, not life, not 40 years, make it 20, make it 
can we do 30? And there's a bit of a mitigation or a reduction in the sentence. Not here, brothers and sisters. Not here. David understands that there is no mitigation for sin. That sin needs to be blotted out. That sin needs to be dealt with. And there is no lower sentence for sin. None whatsoever. In fact, in verse 2, we think it says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, and that is it. When you have a look a little bit deeper in it, do you know what it really means? David understands his sin makes him foul. It is a stench. It is a stain. Now, it's Mother's Day, so uh, let me try and do something, but I'm going to fail miserably. Sometimes, have you seen on, on television, um, it's probably not that, that common now here, but it will be somewhat. You will see, they, they show these pictures in Africa, you know, these are charity videos of whatever sort, see them on television, and you see the ladies, the moms, scrubbing clothes, don't you? Because they don't have washing machines, they don't have electricity. The concept here is the same. David understands that the way he is cleansed is to be scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. He's not got to be washed once. He's got to be washed twice, thrice. And so it continues, you see. In verse 1 and 2, David is a broken man. Moving on then, it says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely my de you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost. You see, what's happened here is that David has been caught out for his adultery. But he doesn't say, for I know my adultery. He says, for I know my transgressions, plural. David understands, and so should we, that it is not a single action which causes us to be foul, to be filthy, to be a stench. It is not one act. It is us, totally depraved, totally filthy. But just wind back a bit. It is because of God's standard, isn't it? That is our comparison. For I know my transgressions. And what does he say in verse 4? Against you only have I sinned. Well, I'd argue that David has caused a lot of destruction on the horizontal. Well, what about Uriah's family? What about Uriah himself? What about those soldiers that were probably killed in battle? What about Bathsheba and her shame? What about the child that died? But who does David go to for forgiveness of sins? Who does David realize and recognize forgives sins? And who has he sinned against? Well, it is God. My dearest brothers and sisters, his entire being and our entire beings are sinful. Sinful, absolutely filthy. 
And so he has sinned against God. And if we look a little bit closely at verse verse 5 and verse 6, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Well, here we get into some very interesting and tricky ground. Uh, Was I born sinful? Did I act sinful? Have I chosen to be sinful? Well, what does David say? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, when we are conceived, we are enemies of God. You may not like that. I certainly don't. And if you think I'm here saying to you one thing, and we're disagreeing on this point, I don't like hearing that. In fact, I think it's for my human sinful nature. I repel against it. But that matters nothing, not a jot. It matters that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David tells us that we are conceived in sin. And we are utterly sinful. Um, But we reach verse 7, and this, brothers and sisters, is where it starts to turn. You see, because David, again, under the power of the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 51, talks about the hyssop. Have you ever noticed that? The hyssop? Where have you heard about the hyssop in God's word before? Can I name two? But before I do, the hyssop was often used in ceremonial cleansing. And there was, for example, lepers who were cured of leprosy. And they would be cured, and then they would go for their so-called ceremonial cleansing, and they would go to the priest or wherever it may be, and the priest would take two birds and a couple of other odds and sods. Sorry, forgive me if I was a bit, uh, maybe slightly blasphemous there. Um, But he would take a couple of uh, things, kill one of the birds, he would take the hyssop, dip it in the blood of the dead bird, and he would then sprinkle it on the cured leper. Not to cure the leper, but on the cured leper. Note the order. Not to cure the leper, but on the cured leper. The point being that the leper is now clean. You see? The leper is now clean. So the hyssop had a very, very important role to play in ceremonial cleansing in the Old Testament. And something else happened in the Old Testament. In Exodus, there was a great exodus, wasn't there? And do you know what was used to put the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites in Egypt? A hyssop branch. You see, when the hyssop was dipped in the blood of the lamb, and the hyssop, the blood on the hyssop was put on the doorpost, death did not come knocking at that door. And do you know what the Lord Jesus drank from on the cross before he died? A sponge. Do you know what the sponge is on the end of? A hyssop branch. Isn't that amazing? We look at Psalm 51 and we think it's just a psalm about repentance. And then we look at Psalm 51 more closely and it says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, what is whiter than snow? Being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. What a joy. Being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And death will not knock at your door because you are whiter 
than snow. And so we continue looking at Psalm 51, and we see some other things. And I'm afraid we don't have time to get into the depths of it. But I want to point out just a few things to you, if you don't mind. Can you see in verse 11, or take your Holy Spirit from me? You see, David already had the Holy Spirit. David was already an Old Testament Christian, for want of better words. But he'd fallen. Terribly. Absolutely terribly. He had caused destruction beyond all means. I sin, and it affects some. David sins, and it affects the world around him. Because he is a king. You see, brothers and sisters, I wonder if you'd ever ask yourself, what is my most wicked sin? And what if it was published? And what if it was published in the most published book in history for all to see? And for this African to preach about it. The depravity of sin is vast, but there is a hyssop branch involved. And so, brothers and sisters, we keep looking at it. And we see in verse 16 and 17 that when we are cleansed, when we are clean, when we are whiter than snow because of the blood of the Lamb, oh, brothers and sisters, we are clean. And we can teach. And we can rejoice. And we can praise. But we don't just do it because we're clean. No, 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 no. That's not what David is saying. David is not saying, Greg, you've been forgiven, therefore. He's not saying that. He's saying in verse 17, Greg, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you do not despise. You see... My joy is made complete when I am forgiven. But I am not a happy man. Forget it. Ask a missionary who's been on the mission field whether they are happy people. They are not. But they are joyful. They are joyful. Their joy is in the Lord. And you know what God says in the book of James? Consider it pure joy, not happiness. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. You see, repentance is a cleansing of the heart. And it becomes a contrite heart. It becomes a humble heart. And then what I do matters to God. Because I do it with a contrite heart heart. So when you look at David in Psalm 51, do not see a man who's forgiven and happy. See a man who's forgiven and broken, but his joy is in the Lord. I'm sorry again, and I, I keep on apologizing, but I'm, I have to, for, for fear of, well, just not conveying God's truth fully and truthfully to you this morning, in its entirety. 
So a, a quick summary of Psalm 51, if you don't mind. You cannot keep God's commandments. <laughs> Try as you may. I promise you, you cannot. But what you can do is fall at his feet and acknowledge his love. You see, and then grace is multiplied. Then grace becomes real. I'm going to say something extremely controversial. My dearest brother, Joshua Clark, is going to reel and recoil. Are you ready? I think Martin Luther was wrong. I think he was fundamentally wrong. And hopefully this goes down in history, because then it would be proved right. You know, we talk about the solos, don't we? By faith alone. Through Christ alone. And we say these things. But I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters. It is only by grace alone. And if there is a solo that we need, it is grace. Because without grace, there is no Christ. Without grace, there is no faith. Because we can do nothing. You ever thought about it? You can do absolutely nothing but fall at the feet of Christ. And so we fall at the feet of Christ because he drank from the sponge at the end of a hyssop branch. We're nearly done. Can you flick to our lives, please, Jack? Here you go. I hope you can read that. You see, we need to look at examples of people who have gone before. As you get older, and I see a couple of you here, I think I'm getting to that category soon, we learn that we must read history. We learn that men and women that have gone before have set a very high benchmark for us. Sometimes... It's in the way they lived. And sometimes, my dear brothers and sisters, it is what they said. Well, you may know, and I hope you do know, the story of John Newton. This song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. What did the Apostle Paul say? What a wretched man I am. And what does King David say? Have mercy on me. You see, repentance, we say it, we talk about it, we use the words, we have the language, but do we come to it with a contrite heart? Do we come to repentance broken? Are you broken? Because if you're not, you don't understand Psalm 51. And if you don't understand Psalm 51, how can you know the love of God? How can you know the love of God? Again, I say to you, and I use these words very, very carefully, my dearest brothers and sisters, we are God's elect. Get to know the love of God in Psalm 51. Understand it. Read it. Repel it, some of it. Make it hurt you deep inside and be a broken man or woman because it's that sacrifice that God wants 
not bulls and goats and birds. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want that at all because it means nothing to him. It means nothing to him. And so in conclusion, just two more quick slides, I hope. You see, we need atonement for our sins. And God's wrath is fierce. Do not believe the lie, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Do not believe it. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read when the demon-possessed man runs towards the Lord Jesus in the Gospels? What does the demon-possessed man say to Jesus? Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, have mercy on us and do not what? Torture us. You see, he is fierce and his wrath is immense and his love is intolerant of sin. And so he does not accept bulls and goats and other things we think we can get away with to satisfy God. No, sir. No, ma'am. He only accepts the blood of the Lamb to wash us whiter than snow. And Martin Luther says, I admit, actually, I probably agree with this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? He's a Christian man saying this. Can you say this? I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. What a joy. What a joy. What a joy. Well, I've been rambling for a while, and you're probably thinking, Blimey, is he going to end? Well, I'm about to. So how do we pray? Well, brothers and sisters, if we don't come to God with a contrite heart and prayer, stop. Please, stop. You insult the maker of all heaven and earth. And you do not want to insult him. When you pray, pray Psalm 51. Accept full accountability for your sin. What does David do? Does he bring Bathsheba into the mix? Does he bring, oh, Uriah left her for a while and I had an opportunity, Lord, and you put the opportunity in front of me to, have, to commit adultery with Bathsheba? Does he say, oh, God, you know, this was all created by somebody else? No, he doesn't. So my brothers and sisters, when you pray, whenever you pray, and when you walk with the Lord, hear this. Look to Christ. Always to Christ. And only to Christ. And be joyful. Not happy. Be joyful because you have been saved. And you will be where Christ is. You'll be there. Zephaniah snoring. No, no, I like it. Probably the best response I'm going to get today. He's not hearing it. That is how we pray. But what about when we come together as a body? 
When we walked through that door today, and you came in here, where was your heart? Where was your mind? Where was it? Was it saying this, O sovereign God? And did we come with a contrite heart? And did we pray a prayer of repentance? Hmm. These are great questions. My brothers and sisters, as we finish, again, how do we pray? And how do we repent? I hope in some way, manner, shape, or form, I have helped you to understand through Psalm 51 that we are forgiven, that there is joy at the foot of the cross, and there is no other joy, and no other joy matters, but other than being at the foot of the cross. Because do you know what? At the foot of the cross, we attain God's standard of love. Because Jesus steps in. And so, I'll read my note to you. That's at the bottom of this PowerPoint slide. It's got four words. And with this, I'm going to end. Four words and four words only. And if you walk out of here and you forget everything else, don't forget these four words. I hope you'll remember them. In fact, if you don't, we'll play hangman next week. There are four words. Christ. Christ, Christ. I must repent. Christ, that is what matters. You must accept Christ. Please, I beg you from the bottom of my heart. It is about Christ. Oh, Father, you have stirred us. Awaken in us a new contrite heart. A heart that loves you. A heart that tre treasures, cherishes, acknowledges, and knows the depravity of our sin and the magnificence of Christ. Where would we be without Christ? And so as we go, may we go with contrite hearts, full of joy that we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are whiter than snow because of the blood of the Lamb. And we can only pray this because of the Lord Jesus. And so how do we pray, Father? It's not our words. It's not our minds. It's our hearts that come before you and say sorry. Help us to live lives pleasing and worthy to you. Amen.